0: Master Hakuin's chant in praise of Zazen. From the very beginning all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus, one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? A pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and true our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, We go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form and going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. And this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is day one of our uh, summer 2022, seven-day sishin. Uh, Today is the uh, 8th of January. And as I mentioned in the opening words uh, last night, we're going to um, take a look at some of the teachings of uh, Tangan Roshi. Uh, Tangaroshi we'll start with some biographical material. Um, Harada Ch- Roshi was born in uh, uh, 1924 and died uh, in 2018. And I'll be getting quite a little, lot of the material for these talks from um, a memorial issue of Zenbo. This came out in the summer of Northern summer of 2018, uh, where this, there's um, some uh, m- memoirs of of Harada Tanganroshi Roshi, and we'll also be we'll be looking at some of the quite scant um, English translations of some of his talks. But we're going to start. With um, an article by um, Roshi Boden Colheed about Tangan. He writes There is probably no more potent fuel for spiritual aspiration than an awareness of the inexorable law of transience. Tangan Roshi's early life was marked by loss and unusual suffering. His mother, after being warned by doctors that bringing her pregnancy to term could prove fatal, did die while he he was still an infant. For the rest of his life, he felt a deep indebtedness to her and a love that later evolved into a special affinity for the bodhisattva kanon. It seems just from, um, without doing any kind of uh, rigorous research into the statistics, it does seem like an awful lot of of, um, Zen masters uh, faced major losses in their um, early years. Uh, especially loss of a parent. Maybe this was just more common then in the, in ancient times, but I think of um, Master Dogen, um, Ma- Master Sheng Yin, More recently, his mother died in childbirth and he um, went on a long pilgrimage, making a prostration after every step in a, as a way of um, paying back the karma he felt, karmic debt he felt he owed to, to his mother. Um, uh, Nyogen Senzaki Roshi also was, was um, a, f- a foundling, I think, if I think I've got it right, I didn't have the material to look this up, but um, discovered uh, in the snow, uh, still alive as a baby and uh, taken in and, um, by foster parents. From childhood on, Tangan Roshi later said he was always very rebellious, as though in search of something. And um, there can be this re- rebellion can be can be fueled by the the anger at, at loss as well. It can be an element of it. But by, but by the age of 12, his, his search really began in earnest. A deep questioning arose in him as to the essential nature of things. There is something I feel but I don't understand. I can sense its presence but can't grasp it. Again, I think this is something that quite a lot of us can experience, this this sense of... of um, of sensing the ineffable, but not being able to um, give it na- a name, no words for it. And, and because of there being no words for it, it be- can feel very, very elusive, very um, unreachable. His feeling of separation from people and things, though not unusual in adolescence, seems to have been especially acute. I can remember sitting with Bodin Roshi one time when we were um, in in Mexico we were sitting at I think it was at a cafe and we saw this this group of of, of teenagers um, and uh, you could see you could see. How they were posturing, and how how underneath that posturing was so much pain. And uh, I remember saying to to Roshi, "I I'm uh, glad I'm not a not a teenager anymore." And he he turned to me and said, "Well, you will be. <laughs> if we if you believe in in rebirth, it could be a good motivator for practicing." So, a strong feeling of separation from people and things throughout his his adolescence. But then, at the age of 18, he had a glimpse of that which is beyond suffering. During a school vacation, he climbed a small mountain alone. On the way up, consumed by self-reproach, he found himself chanting the rules of an acclaimed preparatory school, which he later surmised brought his mind to a purified state. Once atop the mountain, the strong wind seemed to sweep away his feelings of worthlessness. Looking out over the Pacific Ocean, he felt himself expanding into an oceanic feeling of oneness with everything around him. It was a life-altering experience that left him him feeling held and protected by a benevolent universe. It would prove instrumental in enabling him to survive the suffering yet to come. And again, this this is not so unusual to have an experience like this. As a child, especially, it can be very fleeting. And again, often without our being able to put words to it. Um, somewhat like a dream, or it can become a dream, like a dream later, and these these fleeting experiences of of um, non-separation, you could say, um, can can um, keep us going through um, the many difficulties that we we face in in life and uh, in practice. When he turned 20 toward the end of World War II, Tangan joined the Japanese Air Force in China and volunteered to be a kamikaze, in other words, a suicide pilot. Um, After a year of intensive training, he was assigned to his first and final flight. Just as he was about to board his plane, after the ritual cup of sake, he heard Emperor Hirohito's voice on a loudspeaker Announcing Japan's surrender, so this this dramatizes what we heard in, um, yesterday about his his um, being prevented from taking his flight. Right on the cusp, you can imagine the emotional um, uh, intensity of these young men drinking their last cup of sake. There's actually a photo in this in this zenbo of uh, Tangan. Uh, about to knock back his cup of sake, that close to to this extreme sacrifice and uh, thwarted. That's how he experienced it. And just was we'll switched now to the the um, article that I quoted from last night, uh, which is accounting this this um, experience from his own memory. This is Tangan now speaking, or writing. When I was young, I went to war as a kamikaze pilot. I had firmly made up my mind to give my life because I wanted to protect my parents, my brothers and sisters and my friends. Other pilots went before me, giving their lives in that final flight. I waited my turn. My turn did not come. The war ended just as I was about to fly, I was devastated because I could not carry out my commitment to help. I wasn't able to serve, I felt useless, all my comrades had given their lives and there I was, still miraculously spared. Sorry, I, um, all my comrades had given their lives and here I was, still alive, to what purpose? After that, again and again, just on the brink of death, my life was miraculously spared. And we'll, we'll come to a couple of stories about other incidents of, of this nature. He continues, after that, again and again, just on the brink of death, my life was miraculously spared. You too are perfectly protected. It just isn't obvious to you. You are receiving all the care protection and guidance and love of all the universe you just haven't been able to see it yet but you will and he goes on to talk a little bit about what it was that that um, was the kind of the turning point for him in in or the beginning of the turning point in seeing um, his his Uh, not going to his death in a different light. Before I started my Zen practice, my life was spared over and over, and yet I couldn't rejoice in life. I couldn't appreciate it, not yet. I felt only anguish and despair. Those who had died, was their death in vain? Did they, they die and that was it? These questions stayed with me, It took over my mind. It was during that time that I was fortunate to be given an audience with the great master who was to become my teacher, Dayun Roshi. He told me that first time that I met him that he understood my suffering. He told me that I could come to be at peace. I had sought to help those of our own country. I still wasn't able to see beyond the narrow category of my own countrymen. My view was still very limited. But he told me that first day that life does not end with death of this body. True life does not disperse like a mist. Knowing true life, you can be at peace." What is this true life that doesn't disperse with the death of the body? Dayun Raji doesn't say what it is, he just assures tangan that uh, not to be or not to be um, deceived by the death of the body and think that that is uh, death of everything. My teacher told me, you yourself are still alive so that you can forever and ever follow the path of giving. You can steadily ever ever more give your life to save others, so he took this impulse deluded and we could say of Tangan to um, save his his parents and his brothers and sisters by becoming a kamikaze pilot, and he he points to an opening there rather than than and saying this was a stupid thing to do, he says just expand, Let's expand that sense of protection beyond the narrowness of um, nations and families. This is, this is, this is the, the, the core of um, Buddhism really, the bodhisattvic spirit giving, protecting, embracing, all. He goes on to um, say, even with the death of this body, the genuine life continues. There is something that does not die. My teacher told me that if I really wanted to understand the meaning of life, eternal life, that it would take all the determination and effort I could possibly muster. Without thoroughgoing, single-minded determination and effort, you will not be able to know truth to find the solution to your question, your problem. You will not realise truth if your aim is unclear and if your practice is weak. If you are going to think all along the way that you have, have given all you could possible, possibly give, You won't make it. You must continue, continue this one doing. He told me as I tell you today that my resolve must be absolute. I must be prepared to persevere with single-minded conviction and effort. I knew then that I would carry through. Will you carry through? So we'll get a a bit more of an idea what this single-minded effort looked like when he did take up training. Roshi in his article goes on at this point to describe one of the other ways that Tangan's life was spared. After um, the end of of the war, he was uh, captured by the Russians and held in a POW camp in uh, very, very severe conditions. And then it seemed that uh, Kanon intervened as forces of compassion. Apparently a, a, a Russian officer um, forced Tangan at gunpoint to sit down and drink vogt- vodka with him. He drank so much that he had to be hospitalized, got alcohol poisoning presumably, and while he was in hospital, all the other People and the men in his group were sent to Siberia and never returned. Tangan then returned to Japan in, in 1946 in a state, this acute state of, of distress and soul searching. And the way that he came to meet um, Dion Harada was that somebody suggested that perhaps going to Seshin might help him. And he went to a um, uh, nunnery, convent, where the abbess w- was a disciple of Harada Sogakuroshi. Roshi. I'm guessing it was um, Nagasawa uh, Roshi, this abbess. Doesn't name her, but it's probably who it was. And so from there, he was pointed to um, Harada Sogaka Roshi's monastery, Hoshinji. Um, and, and Roshi continues with the story saying, the Spartan training at Hoshinji proved to be a perfect fit for the young tangan and in Harada Roshi he found the teacher to whom he would remain forever devoted and who would become his adoptive father. Harada Roshi's teaching galvanized and harnessed the spiritual longing that had built up over his short life of loss and suffering. It has been said, anxiety is like a match. Light it and it will show you the way out. Let me just repeat that. Anxiety is like a match. Light it and it will show you the way out. At Hoshinji, Tangan's angst drove him to sit like a house on fire. For his first three years there, he wouldn't lie down to sleep, instead doing zazen through the night. He would sometimes sit in a bamboo grove on the mountain behind the monastery, gripping one of the trunks and roaring, moo, moo, moo. He became so exasperated that he punched himself in the face, dislocating his jaw he would later surely have realized the absurdity of punishing himself. There's there's a lot here in this paragraph that we need to comment on. Um, First of all, this this, um, not not lying down to sleep. Um, We we can see his his zeal in this, but it's not something we necessarily um, should emulate. one time, I had um, heard from an, another one of my teacher's students that he had uh, experienced kensho in a re, in a, in a sishin, uh that he had done with Roshi Kaplow, who was still giving seshines at that point. And he went on to describe in quite a lot of detail um, that seshine, which which is not something that is necessarily helpful for you to describe your sishin to somebody else. And it wasn't helpful for me because I, I kind of latched on to the the, the the part where he described how he hadn't slept for most of the sishin and decided that therefore I was going to not sleep for most of the session because that's what I needed to do to see into my koan. And it wasn't the right thing for me to do. It I just got more and more um, fuzzy and, and tired and um, uh, grim-looking, I guess, because I got a note from one of the monitors who was usually quite a firebrand telling me to take it easy. And I guess the one thing that, that I learned from doing that was that actually, for me, some sleep each night would help me to clear my mind and sit more effectively. It wasn't the right thing for me to do, but we can still appreciate the the um, the zeal of tangan here, um, and be willing to, to be willing to experiment. Something that can be quite good sometimes in sishin is just to try and break habits. So if you have a certain Way of of getting through your seshin day, do it differently. Do something different. Don't do what you all habitually do every every lunchtime or every dinner break or um, how how you arrange your your blocks of sitting. Mix it up. And here, I would include sleep. If you if you always go to sleep right after the end of the evening rounds and Um, Sleep right through to the wake-up bell. Try something else. Try it differently. Experiment. Don't get stuck in ruts. And it may be that you do get to a point where you are gripped by the practice in a way that that, um, you just don't want to go to bed. And sleep the whole night through, vocalizing uh, the koan as he describes here, um, gri- gripping one of the the trunks in the in the in the forest on the mountain behind the monastery and roaring moo moo moo. Um, This, this uh, vocalising the koan used to be a practice that we do um, in Rochester on the last night of, of Sishin and it, it's, it can be very powerful and it certainly brings the koan into the front of the mind. I, I haven't continued with that practice for... We used to do it way back when we started just because um, it wasn't so... Um, necessarily so helpful for the people who weren't working on koans but it is a way to to just um, bring bring the koan uh, to to the very, very front of one's mind and and embody it through the the vocalizing. Then then he says this, Oroshi reports that he became so exasperated that he punched himself in the face, dislocating his jaw I was just, just um, reflecting on this and thinking, wow, that's really pathological to punch one's own face. But maybe that was what it took for, for him to do that and injure himself. Maybe that was what he na- needed to do in order to see that pathology, to see very vividly the way in which we can divide ourselves against ourselves, where there can be the that inner critic and the one who is criticised—we do that a lot. We may not punch ourselves in a draw jaw, but we certainly do damage by our through our critical, harsh uh, way that we we th- we think about ourselves. This is this is um, very very common. But yes, sometimes it takes us, it takes something extreme like this, a, a, a doing something stupid really, um, to, to see our pathology, to, to um, be able to come back more to something more balanced. We have to, it's like a pendulum has to swing out to the extreme before it comes back towards centre. Through his long-sustained exertions, he had lost much weight and grown increasingly weak. But one of the wondrous effects of wholehearted Zazen is its self-correcting power. And like Siddhartha, after his own period of fanatical asceticism, he finally found a greater balance in his efforts and subsequently came to his first Kensho. And just before we continue, just to go back to the other article we're reading from, because there's a paragraph here where he, he talks about his own um, journey through practice. And this is, um, this comes right after the bit we just read where he um, he had been told by um, Dayun Harada that he'd have to be... Um, resolute, that his resolve needed to be absolute and he had to be prepared to persevere with single-minded conviction and effort. And he, he commented, I knew then that I would carry through. Will you carry through? And he continues, not, that is not to say that it was easy for me. I struggled mightily as you struggle. But I, struck, I stuck with the practice. The one single way of practice I made no excuses for myself. I did not allow my practice to fade out in feelings of discouragement. There were rough, rough times, even times when I thought I was not going to live through it. But I stayed with the practice no matter what. And this is what each one of you must do. I remember that there were times when I could no longer breathe, times when all went dark before my eyes, times when I thought I was going to pass out but even then i refused to give myself give my give in to my old self-centered patterns of behavior i did not try to adjust the practice to do it my way i stuck with the simple practice that was given to me i cannot stress enough to you the absolute importance of sticking to your practice no matter what no adjustment is required no calculation is needed i went through the same thing that you are going through now so i can tell you from personal experience what you must do you must give your life to this and refuse to let anything else any thoughts ideas attitudes get in your way your yes must be open your resolve must be of steel i think this 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 is beautiful this this expression he has here your yes must be open. That's the kind of the resolve we need. This um, uh, what what um, Guadalupe calls um, interest. We must maintain our interest, our questioning. Our, a sense of, of openness we, we and part of this is being willing to make mistakes because in fact we really can't go wrong if we if we make a mistake it's because we're a, uh, do not see the truth clearly and therefore that mistake comes about. We're deluded in some way. To be willing to, to, um, to fall down. Marshall Rosenberg, the, the founder of um, nonviolent communication, uh, would say if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. The Japanese saying, seven times down, eight times up, such is life. To keep picking ourselves up, um, to maybe practice in an imbalanced way for some time before we find our balance. We could, we could say that pra- practice falls under that um, old saying. Moderation in all things, including moderation. Continue with the biographical material. At age 29, Tangan was the head monk at Hoshinji when Philip Kaplow first walked through the monastery gates in 1953. Kaplow's studies in Zen philosophy under D.T. Suzuki in New York had convinced him of the Zen saying, a picture of a cake doesn't satisfy hunger, even as it left him brimming with concepts about Zen. But by now Tangon had developed the insight to see through Kaplosan's intellectual pride and brashness, recognizing beneath it the same anguished searching of his own youth. Their countries had been mortal enemies, leaving them both scarred and dedicated to realizing that which united them, their innately enlightened nature. Tangon also must have seen that Kaplosan his senior by 12 years, had the full package, the compelling need to come to realization and the determination to do so. His demands on Kaplosan matched his faith in him. Once, when the American newcomer was sitting in the Doksan line, Tangan, who alone at the monastery had learned a little English, was sitting behind him, ready to go in with him as his interpreter. No sooner had Kaplosan struck the bell, dong, dong, and stood up, than Tangan, without warning, struck him violently behind the ear. san, enraged, took a swing at him, but with no time to lose, stormed right, straight in to see Haradaroshi. So I hope this isn't happening in our dog sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> So Kapl-san enraged, um, takes a swing at him and then storms right in to see Harada Roshi. For the first time, Kaplosan was able, in his aroused state, to respond to the Roshi no-mindedly, from the guts rather than the head. Harada Roshi signalled his delight. From then on, Kaplow writes in Zen Merging of East and West, he found himself, quote, operating on a higher energy level and at Doksan was no longer afraid of the Roshi. Tangan had known well that compassion can take the form of harshness. Again, to have a caveat here. we um, have to be very careful not to ape such behaviour. It, it has to be coming from a, a place of real uh, compassion and wisdom. Um, not just doing, doing crazy things because it's Zenny to do it. Um and certainly, if it is aped, it can turn into a form of abuse and um there are examples of that so but if there is this real understanding and compassion, then um the sort of unconventional behavior can be um galvanizing as it was to Philip Kaplow and he was always so grateful for um, the friendship and help that Tangan Roshi had given him when he was training at Hoshinji in very harsh conditions. Tangan also meted out his special compassion for the American, even when doing so cost him precious sleep. On the last night of a seven day session after the formal schedule had ended for the day, Kaplo San secluded himself in the bathhouse to continue his sitting. Tangan, ever solicitous of his struggling foreign charge, followed him in and spent hours urging him on with the Kyosaku. By the end of the night they had bonded to a new degree unique to such shared exertions. As dawn broke, they silently embraced, and Kaplow remained forever indebted to his mentor, friend, and dharma brother. In 1955, Harada Roshi sanctioned Tangan as a teacher and sent him to the dilapidated old temple of Bukokuji, was founded in 1502, half a mile from Hoshinji, to begin teaching. Just 31 years old, then, Tangan spent his days rebuilding and repairing the temple, conducting ceremonies and going on takahatsu, uh, that's ritual uh, begging, to raise money before sitting, sitting in Zazen into the night. Although Bukokuji was not a fully certified training temple, Tangan Roshi's reputation as a teacher and example of compassion and wisdom gradually spread internationally by word of mouth. By the mid-90s, as many as 60 participants from around the world were crowding into his sessions. Eventually, he was offered a senior position at Aheji, one of the two mother temples of the Soto school. But he politely declined. Not long afterward, he suffered a heart attack but after recovering, he resumed teaching. Later, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, which finally brought his teaching career to a halt. I think he would have had, had the symptoms of that for about maybe seven, seven or eight years and was, was looked after by his students at Bilkokuji. Another lesson in impermanence. No biographical profile of a Zen teacher would be complete without some description of the training at the temple, which always reflects the teacher's understanding and practical application of the Dharma. In March 1985 and this is Roshi Koheed speaking I arrived at Bukokuju for three months of Zen training, with another three months at Sugenji later in the year. Sugenji is the other Japanese uh, training temple with which we have a, uh, a kind of uh, relationship, uh, k- kinship. The challenge I faced is known to anyone with involvement at one Zen center upon entering a temple with a different teacher, adapting to differences in procedures, policies and other forms. The challenge is especially difficult in Japan, where these prescribed norms are typically not explained to new residents, the newcomer is expected to learn them simply by joining with the others in the daily rounds and always keeping eyes and ears open. The key value is to adapt and harmonize with the group. As enshrined in the Japanese warning, the nail that sticks up gets pounded down. Um, Couple of comments here. Um, There's a a book put out a few years ago by a, a Zen None. I forget the name of it, but she she's a Westerner, but who had, she had lived in Japan and in, in in Zen temples for many, many, many years, and uh, she pointed t- out that there was a sort of training uh, motivation in the minute differences that, is, that would exist in the in the etiquette in the ritual between one temple and another. That in one temple there would be a bow at a certain point in another temple there wouldn't. In one temple one would turn clockwise and walk. Another one would, would bow to the cushion first. These sorts, of, these sorts of tiny little picky differences. And yet when you were at that temple you were expected to um, conform to that uh, procedure that was there. And really, the point about this was that it, it would keep you on your toes, and you'd have to let go of any attachment you had to the right way to do things. Also, Roshi mentions here the 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 lack of explanation. Um, in 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 2001, Rich and I went and spent some time at Bukkōkaji and it was the same. It was it was kind of Disorientating, not really knowing what was going to happen next, or or uh, what we were supposed to be doing, um, how we were supposed to behave in the in the formal meals with orioki and so forth. Um, but this is this is not found only in Zen in Japan. Um, I saw once an article on on uh, Japanese landscaping, and it was it was the same there. If you were, if you wanted to learn about um, pruning trees the right way, you just would apprentice yourself to uh, to somebody, an expert, and then watch them. And you might watch them for a year or two before you'd be allowed to even pick up the clippers. And there's there's a lot of value in this, and that you you have to you have self reliance is called on taking responsibility for the learning, rather than having anything spoon-fed. But um, for people from Western culture, this this can be um, very challenging to, to go with this, both the, the lack of explanation and the lack of familiarity, that, that, you know, because you're guaranteed, if you know, things aren't explained, um, you're guaranteed to make mistakes. So we come back to this this Important um, aspect of training: being willing to make mistakes, being willing to to to, um, to screw up, make a fool of yourself, and this this also this value of harmonizing with the group. This is what all the little little um, rules we have are for: is to to create an environment of harmony where we can work, we can work together um, smoothly so, so that we can flow around each other The was one of the few residential training temples in Japan that accepted gaijin foreigners, most of whom arrived there seemingly as ignorant of Japanese Zen monastic rules as of Japanese culture generally. Tangan-roshi was willing to go the extra distance to give even those with no Zen experience a shot. After 14 years of residential training under a teacher with long training himself in Japan, I landed in Bukokchi with an introduction to Japanese Zen culture but like most of the gaijin there, I neither understood nor spoke any Japanese. There was a young American woman who knew enough Japanese to sometimes interpret for tangan and doksan, but with respect to what else was happening at the temple, even she often left us fellow gaijin in the dark. Soon after arriving there, I happened to see her across the central courtyard heading to the Buddha Hall in a special row. Belinda, what's going on? I called out. Oh, we're celebrating the Buddha's birthday. Uh, In Rochester, this was one of the two biggest weekends of the year. The next month they had Jukai, the ceremony of receiving the Buddhist precepts, but I only heard about it some 20 minutes into the ceremony. (laughs) Oh! To be sure, both of these events were tiny-scale there, but Jukai is considered the most significant of all Buddhist ceremonies other than ordination. Leaving the gaijin to fend for themselves for information may have been a feature of Tangren Roshi's teaching, never explain as a key Japanese Zen directive that in Rochester Roshi Kapler himself often cited, while nonetheless providing plenty of printed rules and guidelines to accommodate the Western mind. He goes on to describe the, the kind of laissez-faire tone at Bukokugi, um compared to um, at the Rochester Centre, um, in that besides having to be at um, morning and evening uh, sittings, there was only about an hour and a half of assigned work um, during the day. And, and when I was there, it was it was also work that felt a little bit like it was make work. We had to weed the the women. They they were strict about keeping the men and women separate yeah. in terms of work and we're seating in the dining room and so forth. And the women were assigned to weed the the graveyard, which was right next to the um, the monastery buildings. And the weeds were literally. It was so often weeded. The weeds that we were taking out were, were tiny; they practically just sprouted out of their seeds. Um, there wasn't really, um, you know, <coughs> any substantial weeds to 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 pull out. But um, and and Boden Roshi t- reports Tungan saying, "Take your time; no rush." He, he says, seldom was any instruction given in how to do the job, and it was usually not clear who one supervisor was, or even if there were any at all. There were tea breaks lasting as long as 45 minutes, and we were expected to stop si- talking when the Roshi was present, uh, but apparently there wasn't much talking at the tea breaks anyway. I don't remember that. I remember them being quite quite chatty. but. Um, pointers here, this this unstructured, seemingly unstructured um, environment which of course meant that you had to draw on your own resources and how wonderful to have so much time to do extra sitting. Um, but it was a choice and um, Tangan, when asked about, about um, The, the the style of of discipline at Bukokuji, Tangan reported that when um, when he when his teacher died at Hoshinji, apparently the training fell apart. And he realized at that point that this was because all the discipline was from the outside. It was very, very strict. There was uh, was a very kind of tight ship was run there. And and so, when he saw this happen, when he saw people falling apart, the the, the training falling apart, he realised that that the discipline needed to come from the inside. He says, he said, I used to hit the monks terrifically hard with the kyosaku. now I hit like a baby. And our, my teacher, Boden Roshi, really took this story to heart and when he came back to the States and eventually succeeded Roshi Kaplow at the Rochester sin Center he dialed down the use of the kiosaku a lot um, if 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 it's all if it's all uh, be, we're being held together by the by the schedule by the strictness of it um, then it's not going to it's not going to be um, our own that discipline is not going to be uh, coming from an, a place inside us of understanding or uh, or or nurturance. It can be just. It can be just um, uh, completely relying on um, on the structure. And I think this is, this is one of the sort of koans of, of, of uh, monastic type environment, or even, even Sesheen. Sometimes we, we, we can come and we really, really make an effort for, for seven days, we put our, ourselves into it just fully, but then afterwards we, we, we um, sort of collapse. So, so, again, this whole issue of effort is, is, a, is a koan, to, to find a way to, way to go beyond our self-imposed limitations. Um, and that's where, that's where the structure and the discipline can really help. But to do it in a way that is, is sustainable, that is um, integrated into who and what we are, not something that we put on from the outside. Well, our time is up. We'll continue with this tomorrow, and now we'll recite the four vows.
1: All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure i vow to penetrate the great way of buddha i vow to attain all beings without number i vow to Endless blind passions, I vow to uproot. Parama beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha, I vow to attain.